welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Welcome back to Clean Tech Talk. This is for the second half of my discussion with Dilip Chandrasekharan of Canthal. Dilip is the head of business development for the global steel segment, senior vice president, and previously he was the head of R&D and technology for several years. Canthal does uh, resistance heating in the steel manufacturing space and other industrial spaces, and we're talking about electrifying industrial heat. You've, you've, you've been focusing on steel for a lot of your life. So let's, and you're now got the global steel patch for Canthal. So let's kind of segregate. I, I have an opinion on steel, and I'd like your opinion on my opinion, because you're actually a professional in this space. My opinion is that creating net new steel from iron ore will be diminishing and creating new steel from scrap steel and electric steel mini mills will be increasing over the coming decades. The reason for that is I kind of look for pockets of the future. The United States, you, you're probably familiar with this. The number I have is that 70% of all steel demand is met by scrap steel going through electric steel mini mills. And China has kind of finished its internal infrastructural boom or is tailing off. It's got the Belt and Road Initiative. But that's not at the scale of China's infrastructural boom. That was nutty. And then all the fossil fuel infrastructure, like, for example, here's a factoid for you. I, I was reading something the other day that said there are 3.3 million miles of fossil fuel pipelines in the United States alone. And those are all steel. Three million, yeah. You know, those are all steel. Hmm. And so all of those pipelines, are, in my perspective, are just going to be fed into electric steel mini mills to make new steel but can you this is this is kind of my perspective so it says there's two types of processes here so you're an expert on the processes can you tell us more about the two major types of processes and the quality of heat that's required the temperatures that are required and how that's provided and and if there's more than two then tell me there's more than two and you mean the the, the blast furnace route and the and the electric arc furnace routes in a way yeah. actually there are three because you have the you have the traditional blast furnace route that you take your iron ore, you put them in this really, I mean, it's a fantastic invention, but it's almost 2,000 years old. Blast furnace, where you put it in there, you put coke, you, you, you put uh, oxygen or whatever, and, and you heat up, and then you, the reactions take place, and you get out molten iron, which you go straight into the steel mill. I mean, that is a very carbon dioxide intensive process. Although today it's so optimized that you reuse large energy in the in the integrated steel plant you use everything but still it's emitting a lot of carbon dioxide you also have the other route which is which is more called direct reduction of iron where you actually take the iron ore but you don't actually melt it you want to use natural gas to reduce the iron oxide to iron ore so you get sponge iron and there are a number of those plants in the world actually built a lot of them are in the middle east but they use where you have abundant gas and you use natural gas as a reductant to reduce iron oxide to iron ore so that's actually an existing process that's been there for many years. It's quite, it's a small part of the total iron production, that's that part. And then you have, of course, the, the, the scrap route, which you only go for scrap, mini mills, you melt it, and then you, you go down this part. So these are three ways to kind of, on, on the, the primary or the upstream side of steel until you get a, a cast product. After you have a cast product, then the route is more or less the same. When you make your strip, 
or bar or wire or whatever. You basically heat it in different pro in process steps and then you, you roll it or you form it down in the products. So their downstream chain is quite uh, similar. And there, today, 85% is gas, heat, as I said, or even more. And all those steps can then be replaced more or less by electric heating. It's the, but, 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 but the CO2 impact there is much less. So the main mm -hmm. carbon dioxide impact is in the, in the blast furnace and that part. And, and what, what's happening in the world now is that people are trying to use, instead of in the direct reduction process, Instead of using natural gas, you replace that with hydrogen. Or actually, if you from go from 100% natural gas to varying levels of higher, higher hydrogen content, then you reduce the carbon emissions from that process. And then ideally, if you have 100% hydrogen, you have your iron oxide, you, you reduce the iron ore, you get water vapor, totally fossil free. And, and there are some companies working with you know, developing that process on an industrial scale. That's actually not something that, as I am aware of, exists today in a full-scale commercial industrial plant. DRI with natural gas with, with hydrogen injection exists, but completely fossil free doesn't exist today because that process by itself is quite uh, technologically challenging. It requires energy. It, it's, it's, yeah, there's some metallurgical challenge with that, which is being solved today then. And then the other approach is to take the blast furnace process today and kind of replace part of what you inject carbon with, with other sources, inject hydrogen in the blast furnace, other preheat the gas, preheat the air to reduce emissions in the existing infrastructure. That will get us a little bit on the way. I mean, we'll reduce emissions, we'll not take them away. If you go with the DRI with hydrogen, then you can totally take away carbon from the iron product. Of course, you still have to put carbon in to make a steel. And then you have to have carbon that's kind of biocarbon because to get steel, you have to have iron and, car and, and carbon to combine them to make the scrap-based route is very interesting. What I understand as a challenge, one of the challenges there is that if the whole world goes towards scrap-based heating, there will be a, probably be a shortage of scrap in the world. I mean, there will not be scrap available enough to actually feed that process. Of course, if you, if you scrap all the pipelines of, of uh, natural gas, maybe that will be a part of it. But that's one thing. And then the other thing is that, that a lot of impurities are in the scrap. It's hard to kind of purify the steel and make the, the, all the grades. So maybe we'll not be able to reach the whole portfolio range of today. Maybe you have to think differently in the future saying, okay, we, some things we have to kind of make trade-offs because now we're back to what I talked about before. We can't have it the same way we have it today. Maybe we have to think differently and have a different, we don't have to have 5,000 alloys. Maybe we, we, can do, we can do it fewer because I don't know, but I, I know that it's, it's difficult to get rid of all impurities in the scrap in the mm -hmm. steel making process without using raw materials. So. That's another challenge as well. So maybe for many grades of steel, it will work. For, for the higher alloy and maybe some other special grades, you will still need to have a, another process. So I think that you will have, a, you will need to have also, you can't solve everything by just scrap-based process around the world. You will need, it will be a drive to kind of go to this direct production process. Of course, that requires a lot of energy and, and, and fossil-free electric power. So then you come to the next challenge there to have the infrastructure for that to happen. And we have some projects in Sweden and Northern Sweden where, where there are some, it's, it's good there. It's close to the iron ore. There is today at least fossil free electric power available. I'm not sure about the future because demand is going up and uh, other things are there in place so that can happen. But if you try to do it in Europe, in Germany, for example, then you have a challenge because you don't have fossil free electric power available. I mean, Germany doesn't have any nuclear, they're, they're, they have coal-fired electric power. 
and wind and solar won't be enough. So to make it happen there will be a bigger step. They need to invest in renewable electric power then. Uh, so this will be regional and, and, and driven depending on where you are in the world. But I think that my perspective is that there will be all of these three streams actually uh, for some years to come. And then the, and the fraction that's more scrap based and DRI will increase the coming 15 years and the blast furnace part will, will, will go down. What, what, one aspect of this, which I've talked to people in the industry is that some company, some countries like maybe Japan and parts of Europe, the blast furnace technology is very advanced. It's so optimized and efficient that if we exported that to some other parts of the world and make them more efficient, that would give much larger CO2 emission reduction than investing in new plants with DRI. I don't know if this is true, but, but I mean, because some of the technology in the world are quite inefficient and quite polluting. But if you kind of, you know, invest in the latest blast first technology there, that would substantially reduce emissions because that's what's been done in the other parts of the world. Of course, does it make sense to do that rather than actually invest in new technology which will remove emissions that you can, of course, argue, which is the capex and, and investment costs and so on. But so there, I think there are like, the challenge here is that there are several routes to this and it's not given, I mean, there's not one clear way. It depends where you are in the world, you know, back to what electric power is available and can you process this in a good way? The processing of the iron ore and spawn is a little bit different compared to the blast furnace part. So yeah, it, it, it creates its own, the, the ideal thing was to have an integrated steel plant, blast furnace all the way in the same site because it, it took the molten iron we went to the steel mill and everything was the same way. With the DRI technology where you use sponge iron, you can separate the steps. You can have a DRI plant in one place where you have iron ore access and fossil free electric power. You make your sponge iron. And then if you can transport it in a good way, the steel plants can be all over the world or wherever, depending on where you have electric power available or whatever. And that kind of changes the you know, infrastructure and the, and the, and the flow of today which is actually a big change for many steel companies because it's always been our oh, integrated steel plant, we have everything on site. In the future, I don't think we'll see that. I think we'll see a different kind of, different companies even running this. Yeah, that's actually something I lean into with my projections for marine shipping because I, I do projections through 2100 and then, and then I argue with people like I'm this week, tomorrow morning, I'm speaking to the uh, CEO of the Global Center for Marine, Maritime uh, Decarbonization based in Singapore. I published something last week on why I'm bullish on biofuels. And she was like, well, no, I think we're going to see this and this, this is different. So I want to speak to them and help them out to see at least a challenging, contrary perception to improve the nuances of their thinking. But the articulation I make is exactly what you're saying. Right now, here's some factoids. 40% of deep water shipping is bulk fossil fuels. You know, So it's bulk carriers of oil, gas, or coal. Another 15% is raw iron ore. My assertion is that those the coal portion and the iron ore portion are going to the same place to bring iron ore and coal to a blast furnace uh, in China or some other country. And to exactly your point, as soon as a marine fuel costs go up as they must, and you know, it's like we've got all the replacements we need, but they're not going to be cheaper for deep water shipping than just burning resid from refineries. As those costs go up, and as the requirement for coal disappears and is replaced with highly fungible electrons, it makes a lot more sense to 
wherever the iron ore is, bring electricity to that and do direct reduction processes there, and then ship hot briquetted iron or sponged iron to the place where you're manufacturing steel. And so it becomes containerized, higher processed stuff because you don't have to move two big massive things to a blast furnace. No. Um, you, you've got one thing and some electrons. And that's a very different thing. So it sounds like if I'm paraphrasing correctly, I'm articulating my perspective and trying to align it with yours. It sounds like we have the same perspective. The integrated yes. blast furnace and steel mill becomes a thing of dimin- a diminishing value. Electric steel mini mill scrapping goes up as a percentage and local processing of iron ore increases. Yeah. I mean, that, that, oh, that's... That's what I. That's what I've kind of concluded, and I've talked to some some other people in the steel industry, and there. But it, it's not. This is not something that everybody is agreeing on. I think some companies yeah. are still holding holding on that they won't have the integrated plant. They won't have this. Maybe they haven't you know, realized this yet, or or holding on to something else, or or they have something other perspective. Of course, but I I think that this is, we're going to go in this direction. I think it makes most sense in terms of you know transporting things around the world. I mean that's another interesting thing to dig into in another podcast, maybe, but. The way we send stuff around the world, it's actually quite uh, crazy. Sometimes you, when you when you when you hear about it, even our own production, we send things back and forth, and then you kind of realize that maybe it's too cheap, it's too inexpensive to actually send things today. So it actually makes sense to do it. If it becomes more expensive, people will start doing things different. I think, but, but like I said, maybe that will change if 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 you get you know taxes on emissions of that on CO2 and so on, that will kind of change the, the landscape a little bit. It will become, other things will suddenly become more interesting. Today, they're not even on the table. Yeah. Well, certainly the, uh, what I see strongly is that as carbon pricing comes in, like Canada, I'm in Canada, and Canada's got a carbon price that's going to uh, go up to about $130, $135 US by 2030. That's not as high as it needs to go, but it's pretty reasonable. I think Sweden has a carbon price, Scandinavia's been pretty progressive on carbon pricing. Are you guys part of the European uh, trading scheme for carbon credits? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. yeah. And that last time I saw the a number for that, I think it fluctuates because it's a market for carbon credits, but it was up, up about a hundred US as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, last year, China put in, last year or the year before, China actually put in finally a carbon market. And that carbon market was already three times bigger than all of Europe's mm-hmm. because China is so big. Yeah. Right? It's like China's scale is just every time I look at something in China, like yesterday, I was looking at hydroelectric deployments in China. Since 2020, so here's a number for you. Since 2000, the world has built 132 gigawatts of capacity of hydroelectric dams, of big ones, not the small ones, but the big ones. And 113 gigawatts of that was inside China. Hmm. <laughs> every crazy. time I look at anything, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, um, I mean, it, I mean, we're talking about the steel industry. China is more than fifty percent of the steel production in the world. So we yeah. want to change emissions. We're talking about Europe and so on. If we don't, things happen in China. It will not really impact the, the CO2 emission on, on a global level. So yeah, exactly. I say it's it's hard to understand those numbers, but that's how it is. It's huge. Yeah. Well, and speaking of, I mean, we've got the three point three million miles of pipeline in Europe alone, in the United States alone. But similarly, you know, think about all those Panamax oil freighters and the coal, bulk coal freighters. Those are massive ships and there's a lot of them flying the oceans. And so all that gets scrapped. Well, let me rephrase that. People keep pushing back on this. My assertion is 
by 2100, about 5% of the fossil fuel industry will still exist, but it'll be a petroleum, durable goods, and industrial feedstocks industry. We'll no longer be taking stuff out of the ground and processing it for burning. We'll be taking 5% of it out of the ground and processing it into things that are necessary for industrial component feedstocks and durable plastics and polymers and stuff like that. Uh, but that's going to be my perspective again, the lightest, sweetest crude that's closest to water. So for example, Alberta's heavy sour crude, high sulfur crude that's you know far from water will be first off the market as peak oil demand arrives. But Saudi Arabia's oil is going to be good. The last barrel of oil that's going to be pumped is going to be coming out of the Middle East probably. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just yeah, that's yeah, kind yeah, of the nature yeah. of the beast. It's economics. Mm-hmm. But as we move forward, that means that all those refineries around the world and all those steel drills and all those processing things, all the SAG-D plants in Alberta are just going to be <clears throat> scrap steel. So the, it's one of those interesting things as I look at the fossil fuel industry. Every time I poke at anything, I find the single biggest consumer of everything is the fossil fuel industry. Mm. Right? Yeah. yeah so yeah. No, all that demand I, I, goes away. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, another thing. I mean, I guess you're you you're you know this much better. But when these companies start to lose value, I mean, these these companies are a big part of the world's stock markets and whatever what you call it. If, if they kind of their valuation goes down because of, of what's in the future, stock is not going to be there and markets go down, whatever. What kind of impact will that have on sort of the financial systems? And, and you know, it's all interlocked. So I mean, if I don't know, say these top four, four or five companies, they become half their stock value in some way. Will that affect everything else? Would that kind of, you know, disrupt? I don't know. And of course, there are people then that don't want that to happen. So there are strong forces that kind of want to keep that from happening in whatever way. Yeah. And many of these companies, we're actually in discussion with several petrochemical companies, and they're also investing actually in, I mean, believe it or not, they're investing in, in looking into electric heating. Not, I mean, in, in their process steps, they've actually realized that if they remove some of the part where they burn fossil fuels, they can reduce emissions by quite a lot. So yeah. That's actually a driver for that. Of course, it's still small investments or small commitments compared to what they do on everything else, but because they have so much money. But even, and they are, I mean, I, I think it's more of a, you know, survival thing. If they don't do that, they're, they're, they're just, they're not going to be, I mean, they're going to have no existence in the, in the future, even less. If they do that, then maybe they can exist on what you're saying, that, Everything else is, is taken care of. They produce feedstock for certain processes, certain things and that can still kind of be, a, and then do other things. Maybe they sell energy or, or make electric power or whatever, but, but that's their business model, not what they're doing today. But somebody, some, we're discussing somebody else that it, that could have, have a, that's very scary to think about what will that have an effect on total capital movement and, and ownership structures and, and stock and so on. I don't know how that'll affect, that could affect other things. Yeah, there's lots of interesting psychology there as well. I'd like to pivot a bit, though, because we're talking about electrifying heat. And, you know, I've got this factoid that certain processes are, you know, harder to electrify for heat, like ceramics. They just like a specific type of diffuse, long duration heat of a specific, you know, nature. And that includes cement. Uh, From your perspective as an industrial heat expert, can you give us Example, can you think of key examples where you can't electrify and you need to burn something? Have you ever run into a situation where you couldn't electrify heat? I mean, I mean, where we are not really involved, it's very, it's extremely high energy density. That becomes a, a challenge. I mean, we're talking about a lot of 
watts per square meters or square centimeters, then it's hard to get that in with electric heating. So, okay. I mean, if, it, if it's, for example, when you want to melt, you use an electrode or whatever, it's, okay, it's electric in a way, but that's not something we are involved in. I mean, a lot of energy melt metals, that, that's not something we, it, it's really suitable for electric heating, I, I would say. Also, when, 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 the, when the demand is that our heating technology is mainly radiating heat, of course, we have mm-hmm. some, some products where we actually also heat up gases and so on. But when you want some kind of a, a heating source that gives you radiation and convection and kind of, you know, uh, in a way that a gas burner can actually does, that sometimes can be hard to replace with a single, pro- single solution. We have to think a little bit differently and combine. Some of those cases can also be a, a challenge where you want to quickly heat up something in a process that is without kind of burning the surface or, or, or putting too much heat into the process in, in a, that could be a challenge as well. And there maybe we have to combine electric heating with other, other technologies like induction heating or, or, or something else. And that we haven't, we don't see that much today, but that will come more and more because we have to find solutions there. But where you need to have a lot of energy intensity, that's a challenge. I mean, your case of the, the, the case of uh, rotary kiln furnace in mineral industry or, or cement, where it's, I don't know, huge gas burners and the whole process builds on the fact that it has very long, I mean, 25 meter rotary kilns that are heating this. Today, that would be, you know, that's further away from solving with electric heating. I think it's doable, but it's much more required there to get there. Maybe you have to redo the process so that mm-hmm. you can't do it in the same way. You have to maybe rethink the way you want to do your, your process step. So back to a little bit where you started with, you can't just replace the existing source with, elect- with electric heating. You have to maybe rethink the whole process. And that's always much more difficult, Yeah, I think. And then where else is, of course, very, very, very kind of diffuse heat at low temperatures maybe is not the, I, I mean, there may be other solutions that are better than, but I mean, that can be done, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, if, if we kind of separate this out, I mean, there's just thinking about the technologies, right? Because electric heat sounds like, oh, there's one thing, but there's like a dozen things. Like yeah. I spend a lot of time looking at heat pumps for lower temperature heats. Yeah. You know, you know, if you've got a, a source of heat over there and you need some heat over here, you can just easily move heat from of lower quality, lower temperatures from place to place, right? Yep. You know, this district, you're in Sweden, you've got district heating all over the place, as yep. an example. And I think there's even a nuclear plant in Sweden and 30 kilometers away, the waste heat from the nuclear plant is used in a district heating solution. Yeah. You know, but that's a case where 30 kilometers is viable because the, uh, it show, show, the, the nuclear plant throws off so much waste heat that it's worth just transmitting it and getting 10% to the stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there's heat pumps, which are a form of heat transmission, hmm. right? And yes. let, me, let me test this with you. This is my understanding, which doesn't mean it's correct. Um, it's much easier to transmit lower temperature heat over longer distances than it is higher temperature heat. So it's possible in district heating to put 100 to 200 degree steam or liquids several kilometers but you're not going to be able to transmit you know thousand degree heat more than a hundred meters or something like that in an industrial plant is that you're nodding so that implies uh, I'm i mean i mean of, co- of course the, the losses you would have much more losses i think we, we have to transport large amounts of um, and you need it will be more i mean there have been solutions in the past where you actually transported molten steel you know kilometers but i mean it's like a 
like a like a railway carriage, like a like a huge thermos flask insulated, mm-hmm. and you had a molten steel. Very expensive, not very not very practical, and I mean extreme cases you could do that. But otherwise, I agree because the the heat loss will be quite a lot. If you have high temperatures, yeah. you would lose so much that so you you would. Uh, so you you don't do it unless you have that. And district heating, yeah, you can just insulate the piping and you can push hot hot water steam, and it works really well because that's you know, lower temperatures and you can control it. Yeah. And also so everything else. And I mean, mid- transmission. Yep. Yes. And then there's like thermal storage where you can like put stuff into yeah. water, which is a you know good thermal store. It doesn't expand too much or contract too much. And you know, and then you can get that out, but for lower quality heat, typically lower temperature heats, you can time shift heat for eighteen hours or something. You know, you can't save it for the winter. No, <laughs> You're not no. going to save it for the winter. But then you kind of get into the next thing, which is you know, to your point, there's you you've mentioned resistance and induction, and for people who just have are listening in at home and don't actually have industrial stuff, that's like the coil heaters in the stove versus the new stoves where the there's a magnetic field that heats up the metal in the pan, which is much more efficient. So those yep. are kind of those two things. And if I understand you correctly, Canthal's primary product is in the resistance heating range. Exactly. So mm-hmm. ours is only in the resistance heating range. We're not into the induction part, but where we see the, the, like I said before, the hybrid solution is that if you take large industries and you want to have a, I mean, they have their, both have their disadvantages and advantages. Induction is really good because it's a very quick heat up. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's dependent on, on, on the geometry and, and what material heating and so on. Uh, it has to be something that actually can take induction currents and so on. Uh, and it, it's very geometrically how you design the coils, how you get the heat and so on, and how deep it can go into a, a thick a product, for example. But by combining mm-hmm. maybe induction and, and use induction maybe in the, in the first part to heat up quickly. And then resistance heating is really good to kind of keep the temperature uniform. So for soaking processes in, in, in the industry, have the same uniform temperature over the time you need for a process, then resistance heating is really, really good because you mm-hmm. can control the temperature to a few degrees. You can keep it at the same temperature. It's very stable and so on. And you can make it very efficient. So, I mean, there maybe you have to combine. And in some cases, you want very local heat. Induction is really good. We use a lot of induction heating in our processes because you only mm-hmm. want to heat one part of the of the whatever product you're heating to, to make it to a bending or whatever. And then induction is very good. You don't want to put current on the whole piece. So, I think that, that, of course, the induction heat, if you want to design large-scale heaters, these coils or copper coils, between, they have to be cooled. So, also, of course, have losses in the induction heating mm-hmm. process itself because the more things you have, you have to have water that's being basically heating up water in the coils that has to be then cooled and recirculated and so on. So big-scale installations will, of course, become much more challenging and more costly as well. But I think there's a, it's a fantastic technology because it's, you know, you can design it the way you want it, and it's, it suits very many different applications. And, and it's also, it can be very fossil-free. But you know, even going further, there's like microwaves and electromagnetic yeah. spectrum heating. It's like everybody's got a microwave at home. They know that it makes part of the food hot and the rest of the food cold, and it's really annoying, makes the bowl hot. But yeah. it's actually a very useful technology in industrial heat as well. Then we get to electric arc stuff, which we've already talked about, where there's, you know, uh, arc of high voltage electricity going between you know two two points in the uh, stuff and just creating two to three you know fifteen hundred to three thousand degrees and I think I'm missing one which is plasma. somebody's mentioned plasma plasma exactly I, I, 
don't understand that one sufficiently well to even try to pretend what it is. Tell, tell us what that one is. I, I'm not an expert myself, but that's also something that people are looking at because where you basically, you, you create the plasma. So you create something that looks like a gas, gas flame, but not from a gas burner. So you, you ionize whatever particles or gas with high energy, and then that kind of creates the, the heat in, in the furnace. So it behaves similar to a gas burner, but not without gas. It's more of a ion stream or what you call it in, in, in the, uh, of course, that will also require energy. You have to cool the plasma generator and so on. So, but that, that could also be a way of, you know, uh, high energy heat. Uh, I mean, I know that, for example, in the cement industry, for replacing this big gas burner parts in some parts of the process, they're looking at plasma technology because that can oh. create the same kind of, same kind of, uh, what do you, it behaves a little bit the same way that you want a gas burner to behave in. And then if the electricity power is fossil free, then you can actually say you're fossil free in the heating. Of mm -hmm. course, it, efficiency wise, you have to, it's not as efficient maybe as direct electric heating because you have to cool all the components. The plasma will create heat by itself and that has to be cooled off. But I mean, in many, in, in certain applications, it could be a really good solution because there's no other option there. I mean, you can get very high intense energy intensity in the, in the, in the plasma. And of course, it depends yeah. a little bit what you, I think it depends on what kind of gases you, you ionize and what plasma is, what what kind of exhaust you get. Uh, but that can be, I think, set and decided so you, you, you can have a process that's, that's still fossil free. So it's it's an interesting technology. I think there's a there's some Swedish companies, but actually a Canadian company that I came across, can't remember the name now, that are also looking into that kind of new company that's exploiting that. So I think that there's definitely a niche for that in, in, in several of these segments where, where, where there's not really much option. I mean, where I said, where yeah. we have a limitation, but it, it, I know a little bit too little about that. I, I would like to learn more about it. And actually maybe make some, what, what I, we would like to do is also make some kind of, you know, comparisons. Mm -hmm. where, where are they coexistent? Where are they, what's the advantages? Make kind of energy balance, you know, what's, mm -hmm. how much do you actually need? Because that we also gives uh, our clients and, and the customers the choice to make their own you know, options against each other. Maybe you can combine some in some cases as well. It's not only either or because all of these can potentially remove your fossil heating, but maybe you get some other challenges you need to handle. Mm -hmm. But I mean, and there's still, still little, quite little work done on this. I think there's more to do here on that. It's, it's yeah. fairly new as I understand. Yeah, it, it's easy. We, we, well, let's just take wind energy. Three different guys in three different countries around 1890 all independently invented it. Right, making electricity from wind and water is dirt easy. Like you can yeah. take eight-year-olds and you can get them to make something that'll actually power a little LED light bulb when they blow on a pinwheel. It's not hard stuff. But as we get into this, the the reason I wanted to bring out all those different types of heat is that it's not one solution; it's a suite of electrified solutions. And as long as we decarbonize the electricity and produce lots of it then we can probably solve 99% of heat, industrial heat requirements. But we can't, to your a big point you made, was that you can't necessarily just pull out a component and put in a component with the same characteristics and leave everything else the same. No. We're going to be, you know, so we're going to, you know, as with everything, I, I, I've trained my brain to think in decades because that's what we have to do when we talk about the transformation the world's going to go through. And I'm just looking forward and I'm, I still got to do a global steel demand outlook to kind of map to those curves that you and I have been talking about. 
And yep. this has been very useful for me from that perspective. It's been on my list for like 18 months. <laughs> um, and I've been thinking about it, but failing to get there. But it's going to be interesting to see who builds the cement plant of the future, who builds mm. the DRI plant of the future for steel, who builds mm. the Solvay plant of the future, who builds the BASF integrated chemical manufacturing facility of the future. Yeah. Same, same as well. I mean, you have, uh, that's also the same thing there. You have uh, electrodes that produce graphite electrodes. You have to take them away. That's also a new, you can reduce emissions. So yeah. And I think that's, that's I mean, that's something we are talking about every day. At least that everything today is built for the infrastructure they have. So it's yeah. not optimized for electric heating in that sense. So it's very hard to have a good solution, just replace it there. So there are some clients that are talking about, you know, new, think differently, think new. Then it suddenly opens up. You can, you know, start a question the way we, I mean, should, does, a, does, a, does a slab have to go in this direction? Can it be vertical? Can it be, you know, in order to optimize a new heating technology? And it's like, no, oh, well, maybe it can if we rebuild the furnace or we have a new furnace. So I think we have to do both. I think we have to kind of work with what we have because it will be impossible to kind of only wait for the investments for the new things. So try to work with what we have, but understand that it's not really the best way. And then hopefully when the next investment or when we invest in new technology, then we have an idea of how we would design it. And then yeah. you can actually reap the full benefits. I mean, that's the same in, in many shifts, I think. But, but um... Yeah, I, well, there's a, another aspect of the transformation. So the comparison I tend to make for people is, you know, you got a car and you got a gas furnace and you've got a gas stove and, you know, maybe you've got an air conditioner. And so your gas furnace and your air conditioner are getting old. So you replace them with a heat pump. When they're kind of aging out, you get do a single capital cost replacement of those things. And you're a lot better. And when your car is time to replace your car, you get an EV. And then all of a sudden you're a lot better. But you do that incrementally at the time when it makes sense for your family budget to make those capital uh, investments. Yeah, And maybe insulate your house as well and somewhere in there. Yeah. Uh, get your son to stop leaving the windows open in the wintertime. But for... Some of the industrial processes, we've already talked about the likely separation of iron manufacturing and steel manufacturing, simply because it makes sense yeah. to do that more closely. And similarly, we've talked about the challenges related to the location of industrial facilities based upon the availability of high quantities of low carbon electricity in stable amounts. A lot yeah. of the industrial heat processes require it 24-7, 365. You can't have it for an hour here and an hour there. So it's no. not like you're going to put a wind, put it next to a wind farm and that's good enough. You need no. wind and solar and storage and transmission. And so, you know, what this suggests to me is that just as the iron manufacturing becomes local to the iron mining, uh, the iron ore mining, we, we end up, we probably will end up with facilities like cement plants were built in a specific place for a specific reason. And they'll just say, okay, well, it's beside a port right now because we need lots of this and lots of that. And next year, the next, our replacement is going to be way the heck over there because it makes sense because that's next to trans, uh, big transmission offtake and we can get hot lots of electricity reasonably cheaply. And so we're going to start seeing the replacement plants as they age out not be replaced in place, but replaced oh. with electrically powered facilities somewhere else. So that's a transformational thing that's quite big for people because people work in cement plants. Yes. Yeah. So anyway, one of the questions I have for you, there's kind of, I think we've got six, six minutes or so left. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. I'd like to ask you kind of two questions. One is, you know, kind of a future perspective. You know, in the next 50 years, like I, I think in decades, so in the next 50 years, what do you think the most, how do you think it's going to play out for heat? You know, as best you can figure. It's not a one or two year problem. It's a, it's a decades no, problem. No, I mean, I think it's a little bit, maybe it's, it's, a, it's a, not the, it's a, it's, a, it's a safe answer, but I think a little bit dependent on, on the supply of electric power and, 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 and uh, you know, supply of electric power, basically, fossil free, how that's going to play out as well. Because electric power is, I mean, I, I think that if you have that supply of electric power, fossil free, then heating by electricity or in this heating part, that part makes a lot of sense. If you have, like you said, 24-7 availability in a reasonable, there's not to be high price, or low price, but as long as it's predictable price all the time, then almost any industrial process can be you know, transferred eventually. But that's the challenge there is that will that happen all over the world? And, and there are so many other things that will kind of disrupt that. So I think that's an important factor that, that will, that will play a role. I mean, some of the projects we talk about with people over the world in, in Japan and Korea and so on, their, their roadmap is 2040, 2050, much, much further than what we're talking about in Europe. Because, I mean, they're importing everything. So, so where will they, you know, so I think that's one thing that's, that's, unless we kind of hit up with something that's going to give us cheap electricity. But so I think that's an important fact that will, that will, I hope we have kind of, you know, invest enough in the renewable to kind of get that. But that I think is a challenge still that will next 50 years, that will not have been fully solved. Maybe in 50 years, yes. And then I think that that sort of the, I mean, I hope maybe, and I think that the new, what we discussed just now will drive a different technology shifts in different parts. I mean, I don't think we can really predict what will happen because this will drive other things, changing in value chains, changing in the, the where technology is situated. Maybe that will drive different things. So. I don't know, maybe one, one trend could be that it will not be as concentrated around the world. Maybe it will be more distributed uh, where you have different kind of production facilities and, and, and uh, heating and so on, based on the fact that it's more, makes more sense from a heating perspective rather than, than where it traditionally used to be. I mean, now you have the, the cement factory where you have the, where you have the limestone, you know, where you mine that, and maybe that's going to change. So maybe more more distributed and I think also a lot of new players, new companies that will that are popping up that will kind of sort of replace the old whole company in the way. We have many examples of that. And they've they've made a different kind of analysis. They're looking at the full value chain in a way in terms of from starting point and then taking back it all the way into their into the life cycle part and have a different kind of business model maybe even. And and that could change the, the landscape of these some of these industries. So I think in, in a way, some things will change or many things will change, but, but we still have to heat things in mm -hmm. different processes. And I think it will be much larger to extent will be electrically heated uh, because that's the way it's, we can't afford to burn uh, fossil fuels. But 50 years is, is, although it's long term, it's rather short in this, um, how much will happen in terms of, you know, all the infrastructure needed. That's what I'm thinking a little bit about. That's 2080. We're talking about 2070. Maybe we should think more on, on the 50-year perspective. I, I, I actually don't do that as much. Uh, we think too short. 10 years is like, you know, the, it's long-term in the, in the company, but 50 years is quite long. 
Yeah, well, that, that's why I do my projections out to 2060 or 20, 2100 so that I can kind of figure out what the end game will be and then yeah. work backwards yeah. decade by decade to try and figure out what has to happen in each decade. And then yeah. I can figure out, then when you do that, you can say, well, what do we need to do in the next five years that's yeah. a value for the next 15 years? I mean, I think one, I think one perspective that is, I think is interesting is that I don't know how it's in the, I mean, you can see in the world, but I can talk about the region I'm in here. Here, I feel that it's industries and, and that are driving the agenda more rather than, than the government and the, and the policies. I think in Sweden, it's become like that. Companies have, have you know, made climate roadmaps and they have committed to that. That's mm -hmm. like 15, 20 years from now. But policymakers and, and governments are more reluctant because you know, they're like sort of still afraid they lose the next election or their perspective is, is a bit short. I mean, mm -hmm. it seems strange to say that. Of course, in a democracy, we won't have elections, but if, if, if these things are not stable over 10, 15 years, it's hard to make investments and commit to that. But I, I think that that's a challenge we have. Can we actually align around this in the world? I mean, Sweden, enough, is that's a challenge by itself. European Union, can we align around that and say, okay, this is what we need to solve the issues and have a, a roadmap for the next 25 years that we kind of not jump from one to another because now we're seeing the effects of being in the you know, natural gas monopoly with, with Russia and so on, where that led us. So hopefully that will be a change in the way that, okay, we actually need to maybe put aside some of the national interest to see how can we solve this long-term. I'm not sure that will happen, but I think that's where we need to go because, and maybe the climate change effects will become so bad that people actually will be affected and that will push <laughs> sort of um, governments and policies. But, but I think that, that if we don't do that and, and work together in a way, then it's very hard to do these changes over time. It, it, it's, it's, it, they have to kind of help each other. I think you need to have these things that make incentives and make it interesting or, or force industry in one direction. At the same time, give the industries chance to develop solutions. And so 50 years from now, I hope we have kind of agreed on that before that. Yeah, I'm, so not I'm, sure. I'm doing my I'm doing my little bit as or so many other people, but it's it's tough. And I think that is an excellent note to leave it on. The need for understanding what needs to be done and moving, getting joint action moving forward. So I, I think what I'll do is I'll say thank you, Dilip Chandrasekharan, who is the SVP of the Global Business Development Arm for Steel for Canthal, which you know has sites around the world, you know, and sales around the world and facilities in many, many countries. And they do electrification of industrial heat, which we need to do, as we've been talking about for 90 minutes. So, Dilip, thank you so much. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks.